This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. As you are grabbing a seat, if you could open up your Bibles to Proverbs 28. Proverbs 28. I'm going to pray, and then we will uh, we'll jump in and look at this text together. Lord, we come to you today, and we thank you for your great grace, your, your uh, abundant mercy to us, which we're tasting richly this morning as we gather to sing and to fellowship and to be among your people. We're so aware of your your kindness and your great grace to us, Lord. And so we want to approach your word this morning with a sense of expectancy, Lord, with a sense of, um, Lord, awareness. I I just pray that all over uh, our church family, you would be awakening us. I pray that you would be um, causing us to have our eyes open to see you, Lord, in a more clear way. And we just pray that you would uh, do your gentle, gracious, kind work of life change among us, Lord. Conform us to the image of Christ, Lord. And we want to be bold enough to pray whatever it takes, Lord, do it in our lives, we ask, because we want to glorify you. So, Lord, I pray that you would fill us with your spirit. I pray that you'd grant me strength and clarity. And I pray that you would uh, speak to us uh, profoundly and penetrate our hearts from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Proverbs 28. We are in a series we're calling Revive, where each Sunday uh, we have looked at a different passage of Scripture that has something to do with renewal, with how God renews his people. And the last two Sundays, we spoke about uh, repentance. And we looked at two passages in 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 4 and 1 Samuel chapter 7. Both of these chapters reveal uh, God at work among his people and his people's response to him. In chapter 4, we saw that there was a very surface level uh, repentance. It wasn't really repentance. It was just sort of they got religious when they got in trouble. And uh, we know about that. Uh, we get in trouble and we get religious. So that's what happened. And it did not go well for them. 20 years later, in chapter 7, they were broken. They lamented over their sin. They turned to the Lord and cried out for his help. And he delivered them in a powerful way from their enemies. So what we did was we looked at a story and saw what is the difference between surface artificial repentance and genuine, heartfelt, authentic repentance. Well, I'm going to stay on that theme Uh, But look at a passage of scripture today that's unlike what we've looked at. In this series, mostly we've looked at the Psalms, uh, we've looked at the prophets, and we looked at Old Testament narrative last week. But just to to demonstrate that this idea of repentance uh, is throughout the scripture, today I want to look at a piece of wisdom literature, a couple of proverbs, and see what God says to us. So today we're going to drill down, and we're going to be specific uh, and not general. Uh, the last couple of weeks were sort of a general approach with some specifics. This message is going to be highly specific. So uh, let's read these verses and then we'll jump in. Verse 13, Proverbs 28, verse 13. Proverbs 28, 13. Whoever conceals his transgressions 
will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Well, this this passage, if you're familiar with the Proverbs, it sounds very much like uh, many of the Proverbs in that it gives a comparison. There's a comparison of two things, comparison of two results. What are they? Well, one of them is obtaining mercy. Look at verse 13. At the end, uh, he who confesses and forsakes them, meaning his sins, uh, he will obtain mercy. So on the one side, there's mercy. Now look what it's contrasted to. Verse 14. Whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. The word calamity means trouble. That's how the NIV translates it. It means disaster. It means uh, severe affliction um, and struggle. It, it, it uh, It is difficulty. So here's what the proverb does. It says, on the one hand, there is abundant mercy. On the other hand, there is calamity. Now, what we might expect to see is this. If you don't sin... You get God's mercy. If you do sin, you get trouble and calamity. But that's not what the passage says. The passage assumes sin. It doesn't say avoid sin. The Bible does elsewhere. But it doesn't say avoid sin and you get this good thing with God and do sin and you get trouble. It doesn't say that. The difference in the point of comparison is this. How do we respond to God in light of our sin? How do we respond to God in light of our sin? That is the difference. And what he's saying is that on the one hand, the person who conceals their sin will not prosper. It's the same thing as the person who hardens their heart, they'll find calamity. Yet on the other hand, the person who confesses, the person who doesn't conceal, the person who uh, forsakes will obtain mercy, and blessed will he be. See, this is, this is what happens in times of renewal and in times of revival, that God, God works, his presence works among his people so that he wakes up sleepy Christians. He wakes up sleepy Christians that have walked in patterns, sometimes for months or years. He wakes them up to show them what he is like, He wakes them up to bring conviction of sin. He wakes them up to reveal his mercy and his grace and his open arms. And he calls his people to return. That's the word that's all over the scripture that we've looked at. Return to God and find mercy, forgiveness, freedom. Repentance is a call to come out of chains and to come into freedom. It's a call to come out of darkness and come into light. It's a call to come out of holding on to false gods and to be embraced by the living God. That's what he's talking about here. That is what repentance is. It is a calling us to wake up. And in repentance, Tim Keller says that three things typically happen. um, And all of them involve repentance. Sleepy Christians wake up. That's happening to some of us in the church. We're waking up. The lights are going on. It's dawning on us who God is and what he's like and what he wants to do in our lives. Secondly, nominal Christians get saved, become Christians. 
Nominal Christian is someone who attends church, who acts religious, who may even be a member of a church, may even be a leader in a church. Those people who aren't really Christians but are just playing, playing along um, and participating as a religious person, they start getting saved. That's glorious. So sleepy Christians wake up, nominal Christians <clears throat> get saved, and people who are far from God that don't know God, become Christians and join the family of God. So people come to meet him. All three of those involve repentance. Every one of them involve us turning to God and trusting in God. So this passage is about repentance. It's always a hallmark of renewal and revival. James McDonald says that repentance is the funnel through which all revival flows. It is the funnel. Now, it's not something that causes, we can't repent and cause God to bring renewal and revival. It's not like if enough people repent and get really repentant, then there's this you know, outbreak of mass salvations across the country. There's no guarantee. God acts by his mercy according to his sovereign will. But it is true that wherever there is repentance, that it flows, to, I mean, sorry, wherever there is revival, it flows to his people through repentance. There's repentance prior to renewal. There's, there's repentance at the beginning of renewal. There's repentance all the way through renewal. Why? Because God's people are awakened to his gospel in a fresh way, that they turn and run from him, and that he becomes more glorious in their eyes, and the idols of this earth and the sins of this earth become detestable and empty and meaningless, and his people go for him over all the substitutes. Okay, so this passage talks specifically about repentance, and I'm going to get boots on the ground here, bottom level. The last couple weeks were a little bit kind of 30,000 foot almost, but we're going to be on the ground with this one and look at what does this passage teach us are the basics of repentance. Number one, in repentance, we uncover our sin. We uncover our sin. Now, the word uncover is not in here, but the word conceal is, and what the proverb calls us to do is to stop concealing. And to stop concealing means to uncover. If something is concealed, it is hidden. It is covered up. But he says, whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper. What's the implication? Well, to do the opposite, which is to reveal, which is to expose. So to, to conceal is to mask something, to disguise it, to camouflage it, to bury it. To conceal is to keep something in the dark, out of the light. And so the proverb calls us, as does many places in scripture, calls us to come out of the dark and calls us to expose to the light, to reveal, to open. I'm just calling it to uncover, to uncover. And, and may I say, this is an absolute battle. An absolute battle. Some of you are going to start experiencing the battle like right about now for the rest of this message. Right about now. Get ready. Get your gloves on because the battle's starting right now. Here's always the battle when we hear reveal, confess, expose. The battle is always, there'll instantly be a voice in our head that says, don't do that. You don't need to do that. You don't need to confess sin. You don't need to acknowledge sin. You don't need to expose sin. You're not going to do that anymore. You promised. Remember, so you're okay. Or it's not really that big of a deal. Or if I acknowledge this, what will people think of me? You'll lose your friends. If people knew, if people in this room knew what I'm really like, 
what I really do and what I really don't do when I'm not sitting here an hour a week, if people really knew, they would reject me. That voice is going to start talking right now and saying, this is not necessary, this is for someone else. But the scripture says that we are to uncover, to expose in an appropriate, we'll see this in a minute, in an appropriate way, expose uh, our sin. There will always be a voice that will try to persuade us not to conceal. I mean, I'm sorry, to conceal and not to reveal. So how do we conceal our sin? I think there's several ways that we conceal, if I could just be very practical about this. I think there's a number of ways that we conceal. One is we avoid even thinking about it. Now, what I'm about to say applies to some of us in the room, but not all of us in the room. Because there are as many filters as there are people in this room. So you will be hearing what I'm saying based on some kind of a filter. And there are some of you in the room that always look at your sin, always feel condemned, always walk around feeling some sense of guilt. The point I'm making here right now is, is not for you. I, I, I'd like you to stay in the room. Please don't leave. But this is not aimed at you. This is aimed at people who... We don't consider very often our sin. We, we presume upon grace. We, we assume that we're just okay. And we're more than okay because of grace. We're declared righteous in Christ. So we're in right standing with God. We're not under his condemnation ever. A dual truth, I'm not going to say but or however, a dual truth in the scripture is that we are now living our life and we're being to conform to the image of Christ. So he's making us what he already says is true about us legally. Legally, we're declared righteous. Now he's practically making us more and more righteous, more and more holy, more and more conformed to the image of Christ. And so we all have sin that the Lord wants to address and that the Lord wants to free us from. He, Jesus gave his life and he rose that we would experience freedom. And God wants to free us from the sin that holds on to us. And so we must think about that sin. We must be aware of that sin. We don't dwell on it, which I'll make clear, but we must be aware of it. Otherwise we are avoiding it. And to avoid is to conceal. John says this in first John, he writes, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We deceive ourselves. He says, if we say, oh no, there's nothing really, I'm not have any sin that I'm working with, or we're super general about it, well, we're all broken people, we're all sinful. Boys will be boys. Of course, I'm not perfect. That is avoiding looking at the subject. And so we end up concealing and end up making no progress. We end up being trapped in certain sins because of that. If I were to ask you this question, what is God working on in your life right now? How is he applying his grace to your life to change you, to help you repent and turn to him from certain sins? What's he doing? Could you answer that? If I said to you, what is, what is, is there an area that displeases the Lord, dishonors the Lord, an area of sin that, that the Lord's calling you to turn from and turn to him? Is there an area where God's calling you to turn afresh to him, to receive his forgiveness and to receive power to change? What is that area? What are those sins? Could you identify them? Would you know what they are? It's, it's important. Many times we're not aware. We say, I don't know. I, don't, I haven't really thought about that. I don't really give that much 
thought. I mean, if I do something really bad, I know, but I'm not really consciously thinking about turning to the Lord, relying on the Lord, repenting before the Lord, experiencing mercy, having my chains ripped off and being set free to walk with him and to obey him. I don't really think about that much. What is it? It, Because if we can't identify something, we may be missing out on mercy that God has for us because we are concealing rather than revealing and receiving mercy. What is it? Maybe it's our speech. Maybe it's your speech. Maybe God has his finger on your tongue, so to speak. Do you know something about angry words and critical speech? Maybe you say, hey, I, what the Lord is dealing with in me is my critical speech. I, I, I judge other people. I talk about them behind their back. I gossip about them. I talk about the way they look and the things they do and what I don't like about them and how they irritate and how they annoy me. The Lord may want to say something to you. The Lord may want to free your tongue to be used as it was intended to be used for the building up and for the glory of God. Maybe it's foul speech. The Lord's got his finger on my mouth to clean up my foul speech, my coarse jesting, my jokes, my crude jokes, my jokes with sexual innuendo, that sort of thing. Maybe it's a great, ungrateful speech. Maybe the Lord is cleansing, doing a work in you, wants to do a work in you, to to take ungrateful speech, unthankful speech, complaining, grumbling, mumbling speech, and turn it around by turning your heart to gratitude. You know, in times of renewal, that that is a very common thing that happens. The praise of God is extended and frequent, And people who used to complain about everything are overwhelmed by the mercy and the love of God so that what begins to come out of our mouths is far more gratitude for how he's treated us and loved us. That's a mark of renewal, is grateful speech. Maybe it's proud speech, opinionated speech. You feel obligated to share your opinion in every situation. That kind of speech. Maybe it's not your speech. Maybe it's failure to use your words. Last night at the youth meeting, there was a talk about evangelism, and one of the things that was brought up is how we can have and how we can struggle with the fear of telling good news to people. The gospel. In, in that case, it's not that I'm saying something that's dishonoring to the Lord. It's that I'm not opening my mouth in a way that would bring really good news to someone else. Maybe it's fear of having a conversation with someone that you need to have a conversation with. Maybe it's the fear that if I take a stand and say something on this issue at the office or in my family or even in my church, that it's not going to go well for me if I take a stand and say something. Maybe it's that kind of fear. Maybe it's your work life. Maybe God's got his finger on your work life. We often think God deals with me. If God's going to deal with me, it's probably about prayer or it's probably about lust or it's probably about my anger issues. God might be dealing with us about our work life. God might be calling us to say, as you work, are are you working for God, for his glory? Do you work differently when you're being evaluated, when the boss is looking, when, the, when headquarters, when corporate has come to town to do some evaluating? And then, voila, I happened to be on time this week when they were here, and I stayed late, and I didn't spend hours on Facebook. 
I really worked? Is there a, a laziness issue or a, a work in that kind of way? Maybe, it's, maybe you despise your work. Maybe that's what the Lord has his finger on. He wants to turn your attitude where you could see your work as glorifying him or your schoolwork, your student. You say, I hate school. And yet you know that God has placed you there and called you to be there. He's given you no choice if you're a minor. But he's called you to be there. And maybe you say, I need my attitude changed towards my work in school. Maybe you're just the opposite and you love your work. It's all about your work. As a matter of fact, I've been talking, I don't know how long, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, whatever it is, and you've thought about work five, ten times. You've thought about, here we are, first day of the week, the Lord's Day, and you're, you, you're thinking about work. It's always with you. You live for it. The nice name is, I'm a workaholic. I, I, at the job interview, when they said, tell us one of your faults, you say, well, I'm just too committed to the job, as if that's a noble fault. And yet the reality is you worship your work, your identity, your hope. Everything, everything about your well-being has to do with are you recognized? Are you doing well in your work? And so it's become like your God. Your security and identity is tied to there. Maybe that's your issue. Maybe God's speaking to us about our priorities. Maybe that's it. Here we are, the first day of the week, and you're giving the first day of the week. You're giving your time to the Lord. In the Bible, we give what's first to the Lord. Now, he owns everything, but we give what's first to the Lord to demonstrate that he is a good, benevolent, loving ruler, a shepherd over us who has provided for us. And so we respond, not legalistically to win his approval, but because we already have his approval, we say it's a joy to give you our first. That's why we meet the first day of the week. It's our first. First thing, what's the first thing we did this week? We corporately worshiped. Beautiful. We give them the first of our finances. If not literally, at least figuratively, our first check goes to him. We give him the first of our day. We give him the first of our energy. We, we give him what's first to say he is our priority. So how is the Lord... How is that going? The Lord is your priority. Priority in your family, maybe the family. God calls you in your family to, to grow, not to plateau. It's so easy to plateau and coast in our marriage. God calls us to grow in him, to disciple our children, to love them, to train them. Maybe the Lord has his finger on something there. Maybe the Lord has his finger on something in your involvement with his community, the people of God. Are you bearing the burdens of the people you sit around you? I mean, not all of them, but whoever's in your small group. Are you bearing their burdens? Do you know their names? Do you attend? Do you care? Do you pray? Maybe the Lord's got his finger on that. Do you have a place to serve and be active? Maybe it's our pride. That's easy. Oh, I'm sure that's on the list. I'm convicted of pride. I'm sure I'm proud. Next. No, but what does it really mean? What would the Lord really want to show me to set me free and to change me? Are you easy to correct? Guys, if your wife brings something to you, is, do you listen? Or do you defend? Or do you just like do that? So whatever you say comes back around, I got something right back out you. 
bounces off me and sticks to you, or whatever the kid's saying is. Do you have to be right? Got to keep talking until I am acknowledged as right. That doesn't mean we're a good debater. That means that we're proud. That's what that means. Are you overly sensitive to criticism? I'm just a soft, gentle, fragile soul when it comes to how others view me. Is, Is that what it is? That I'm just very tender if anybody doesn't love me and worship me all the time. I'm very tender when it comes there. Just overly sensitive, boastful, love the attention of others. You compare yourself. Maybe the Lord, maybe you're entrapped. Comparison is a deadly trap. And if we bring that to the light, the Lord will spring that trap and free us in his mercy. That's his desire. So maybe you're caught there. Comparison's always motivated by pride. I want to see how I'm doing, how I compare with someone else. And I'm never like going, yes, I hope I'm the worst. We're always wanting to be better. It self-justifies us. We feel better about ourselves. We're self-sufficient, self-reliant. Are you stubborn? Stubborn. Of course I'm stubborn. My dad was stubborn. My granddad was stubborn. We're Irish, and the Irish are stubborn. I don't care what your nationality is. There's always something tied to it. We're Mexican. Mexicans are stubborn. We're Polish. All Polish people. We're Russian. Whatever it is. Kenyans are stubborn. I don't know. It's whatever you are. We could say, that's... I'm stubborn. Judgmental. Are you prejudiced? Is there another race or another ethnicity or something about them, a certain way they do things that irritates you? And you're just opposed to them. Or someone's sins who are different than yours. Do you you judge the the drug addict? The stripper, the homosexual? The person you say, I don't have the same temptations and sins as they do. The corporate bigwig that's cheating people and making millions. And you're going to represent the man and hate him. Or the opposite, the poor, the person, get a job, is what you think. Is there a prejudice? Maybe it's a thought life. Is there a bitterness, an unforgiveness in your heart? Envy, jealousy, coveting, wanting someone else's stuff, wanting someone else's family, wanting someone else's job, wanting someone else's uh, spiritual experience, wanting someone else's background and opportunity, wanting someone else's house or car, whatever it is, coveting something. God's provided someone else that I think I want that and then I would be happy. Maybe it's that. Where is the Lord? Can you identify? I'm going to wrap this exercise up for the sake of time, but can you identify with what I'm saying that the Lord wants, has his finger on things in our life that he wants to free us from? Greed, want more stuff. We take identity in our possessions. Anxiety, worry, fear. Serious escapes. There's a whole category of sinful escape where our lives are dominated by what we might call addictions or or life-enslaving habits that rule us. Alcoholism or drug abuse, both legal and illegal drug abuse, sexual addictions, pornography addiction, food, overeating, all kinds of stuff that we can give ourselves to. And that stuff, when it is covered and it is in the darkness, 
It grows. But when it is exposed, like all others, when it is no longer concealed, but it is exposed to both the holiness of God and the mercy and grace of God, there is freedom to change. Freedom comes in no other way. So to uncover means we, we know what God has his finger on, and we are in agreement, and we are opening up. And in times of renewal, it's never a question. In times of renewal, people are very clear on the presence of God, and the work of God in their own hearts and lives. Sometimes we can conceal sin by activity, by just activity. Our conscience is stirred. So you're here. Your conscience is stirred. We think about it for a moment. We feel it for a moment. And then, boom, we're off to the races for the rest of the week. Busy. Go here. Go there. We just have activity which covers the work of God. We don't stop. We don't listen. We don't wait. We don't invite the presence of God. We just run. And sometimes we just fill it up with religious activity. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's bad. I shouldn't do that. So I'll compensate. I'll just read more Bible. I'll just listen to more worship music. I'll just do some good deeds. And we just fill it up with activity when the Lord is wanting to free something in our heart. He's not saying, get busier for me. He's saying, stop, be still. Come to me. Invite me. God is eager to flood us with mercy, but sometimes we miss his mercy because we distract ourselves. We can't even sit, we can't even drive from here to the store in silence. We can't sit 10 minutes in silence. And God wants us to cease the activity sometimes, stop filling our lives, even with good religious things, and wait on Him. We conceal with our activity, we conceal with our blame shifting. We just, we feel conviction, we just redirect it. It's just some, somebody else's fault. And so that's a concealing in darkness that never gets freedom. And so we don't change for years because it's someone else's fault. That's what Adam did, right? In Genesis 3, God comes. Well, why did I disobey the Lord? Well, it's the woman you gave me. So then the light goes to the woman. It's the serpent that deceived me. And we blame shift. Yeah, I was never angry before I had kids. I was calm, loving. I used to have joy in my life. If you would have known me back when I was happy, now that I got kids, they disobey all the time. And because they disobey, now I'm an angry person. It's the kids you gave me, Lord. That's Genesis 3. It's the kids you gave me. Well, I only grumble and complain because my boss is impossible. This is easy stuff for you to stand up in a pulpit and say, but if you had to work for my boss, you come talk to me after that and let me know how grateful you are. Lord, it's the boss that you gave me. I only lust because I'm single. I'm sure no married person has ever lusted, but I only lust because I'm single. Uh, I only lust because my wife... Uh, doesn't meet my needs. I only lust because my husband is not romantic, and I bet he is with his wife. And so I only lust because of the spouse you 
gave me. I only stole from the company because they don't pay me enough. If they paid a living wage, I wouldn't have to. I'd be honest on my expense report if they paid me, but they don't. I lied to my parents. I only did it because if they knew what really happened, they would freak out. They would be very worried and out of love for my parents. I do not want them to be worried. I, I, really, I honored my parents by lying to them. When I think about it, I really honored them because if I had told them the truth, mom would have been miserable for like years. So it was just easier for everybody to lie. Conceal. 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 Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon said, excuse making is the commonest, commonest trade under heaven. Sometimes we don't just avoid the topic. Sometimes we don't just um, plunge ourselves into activity. Sometimes we don't blame shift. Sometimes we are far less subtle and we just directly hide and deceive. We erase our tracks on the computer. We hide the food. We hide the drink. We hide the pills. When asked, where were you? What were you doing? Who were you with? What were you thinking? What were you saying? What happened? Where were you? When any of that comes, it's just easier to press it down and just drape it in darkness. Here's what happened. Let's put it here. Let's cover it in darkness. Let's shroud it from reality so that no one will ever know. Let's conceal it because it'll go well with me if it's concealed. God says that when I conceal it, I will not prosper. And it it compares it to hardening my heart. I will fall into destruction is what calamity is. Not eternally, if you're a Christian. But I will experience destruction, calamity, trouble. But if I take the black shroud off of it and open it, I will obtain mercy. God, arms open wide, loving me showering with me with mercy. I can have that or I can have secrecy and destruction. So sometimes we just hide it. That's what happened. Adam and Eve tried to hide from God. That They knew they sinned. Chapter 3, they were ashamed. And they hide, and this is what Adam says. Adam said, I heard the sound of you, God, in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. I was... I realized I had done something wrong. So we hid in the bushes away from you. See, we're afraid of bringing our sins to God. And yet God stands before us. If you're a believer in Christ, God stands with open arms, welcoming us home with mercy and freedom and joy that we cannot even imagine right now trapped in our sin. And we make the same mistake, Adam and Eve. We hide in the bushes, we cover ourselves, we hide because God is here. And yet God has paid for our sins in Christ and welcomes us to himself. Coming into the light, that's where he is, that's where mercy is. You want to know where mercy is? It's not in the darkness. Mercy is in the light. Freedom is in the light. Clear conscience is in the light. Peace of soul is in the light. The joy of the Lord is in the light. In the darkness is fear. Fear of getting caught. Fear of being found out. Fear of consequences. Shame is in the darkness. Guilt, both real and false guilt, are in the darkness. Misery, anxiety, worry is in the darkness. Emptiness, loneliness, isolation in the darkness. 
And so that's why the most loving thing God could tell us is to repent. We think of the word repent, we have it all wrong. We think of some guy, when I was in college, there was some guy, I don't know what his name was, I think it was like Brother Jim and Sister Cindy. I don't know, but it was these two people... I don't know their hearts. I only know what they said. They looked Amish. I remember that. And he would stand up and just yell at people. Repent. Just calling out girls who didn't have shorts down to here to their ankles. Repent. Calling vulgar names, which I won't repeat in this sermon. Calling people, repent. You're going to burn. People, yeah, that's repentance right there. Now, that's evil is what that is. Repentance is the nail-scarred hand of Jesus held out to us welcoming us to freedom if we will cease concealing and start exposing our hearts to him and getting rights with others. Repent is the father on the road looking for us to come so that as we come down the road, he embraces us and throws a party. That's repent. What could be better? Would you rather be in the pigs? Oh, I don't want to hear about repent. That's legalistic. Pass me some pig food. Or would you rather be walking down, walking down and having God run to you and embrace you? Repentance is beautiful. It is kind. It is gracious. It is merciful. We have it all wrong. And the enemy loves it that we have it all wrong because we'll stay hidden. I need to move fast here at this point. We we uncover our sin. Number two, we confess our sin. Look at what it says. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Confession means I acknowledging what God says to be true about my sin. Confession is really not like a heroic act. All it is, here's all confession is, acknowledging reality. That's, that's it. It's not, whoa, I did this amazing thing. I said what is true is true. That's what it feels like. I understand. But it really is just acknowledging what's true. And so it's a regular activity. Earlier, I remember I quoted that verse from 1 John. If you say you have no sin, deceive yourselves. Truth's not in you. The next verse says, if, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the impression there is not that that happened one time in your life, once every two years, every third year when you go on a retreat and the lights are down and you feel real emotional. And you can, No, it, it's like a lifestyle. Just acknowledging reality. Because through confession, we return to God and we receive forgiveness, and we receive the power to change. He says we'll receive mercy, that we will be blessed. There is power to change from the Holy Spirit because of the grace of God when we acknowledge reality. So whom, to whom do we confess? Well, first and foremost, and most importantly, God. We confess to God. Listen to Psalm 32. When you get home, read Psalm 32, because it really is like, if this is a proverb, Psalm 32 is, uh, it's not really a narrative, but it's the personal experience of this proverb. Here's what David says in it. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. Iniquity is sin. I did not cover. That's, that's what we're talking about. I acknowledge my sin. I did not cover. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. That's almost the exact language of verse 13. I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Oh, he goes on, man. He's like, man, I couldn't sleep. He had psychological torture. He had physical torture. He was an absolute wreck. And he said, I just acknowledged 
my sin. I confessed it to you. I stopped covering it and brought it into the light, and you forgave me. It's a testimony to assure all of us of what does God do when we come to him. He, we find mercy, we find forgiveness, we find freedom. So we confess to God. Secondly, we confess to those we've sinned against. See, sometimes we don't just sin against God, but sometimes we sin against other people. So my angry words may be offensive to God, but they're also a sin against my wife if she's the one I was angry with or saying angry things with. Uh, so we can, we can act in a way that harms other people. So we confess to them. We, we say, I'm sorry, please forgive me for I did such and such towards you. Please forgive me. It's interesting. Jesus puts a real urgency on this one. I mean, like, what would you, th- what would you think Jesus thinks is the most important thing? I mean, most of us would think, like, going to church... Worshiping Jesus, like that would be really important. Here's what Jesus says. There's something more important than what we're doing right now, or at least it could hinder what we're doing right now. I wouldn't say it's more important. Let me take that back. But it it, it at least could hinder what we're doing. He says, if you're offering your gift at the altar, worship context, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and give your gift at the altar. Now he's making a, a bigger point about what does the Lord really want. He wants our heart and not just our gift. So there's a bigger point being made there. But there's also a sense of urgency. That this is like really important to get reconciled. And some of us perhaps need to talk with somebody. Our spouse, our child, our parent, our boss. Well, boss is not a Christian. In that case, Jesus said, go reconcile to your brother. So he is talking about brothers there. But if we've sinned against an unbeliever, it doesn't mean that that doesn't matter, that we don't talk to an unbeliever. They might not have a category for all that we're doing, but most people understand, please forgive me, I'm sorry. Unbelievers do that. Coworker, extended family, grandparent, neighbor, someone in the church, more likely someone at the church we used to go to that we left to come to this church. Maybe there's someone there. Maybe there's a loose end that needs to be tied up. When renewal and revival comes, this becomes like breathing in the church. I read a fascinating story about revival in Korea. We have a number of Korean Americans in our church. I don't know how much you guys are aware of the background. I'm not real aware of the background of revival in Korea, but I'm a little aware. Did some reading. Uh, Come to find out, Korea was a very, South Korea had very little uh, gospel witness until the turn of the 1900s, early in the 1900s. There was a revival in Wales, the Welsh Revival. We still sing a song out of that revival, Here is Love, Fast as the Ocean. You know that song we sing sometimes? That that came out of that revival. Evan Roberts was a prominent leader in that revival. And things sort of spread from there. And there was missionaries in, uh, there were missionaries in South Korea, or I guess it was just Korea at the time, but the missionaries in Korea, and uh, they were not finding much progress with the gospel. And what happened is some of the missionaries began to confess some of their sin, just what we're talking about here, and people started responding to that and started confessing their sin, and it spread. In particular, uh, some things were happening between 1904 and 1907, but in 1907 there was a gathering of 1,500 um, Korean leaders and missionaries from other countries. And a guy named Graham Lee got up and communicated something, confessed something, asked for the people to pray for him. 
And as far as I, my impression is from reading, here's where another tradition came, if you're familiar with the Korean church or some Korean churches, um, probably the more charismatic Korean churches. Uh, he, he asked for prayer, and somebody started praying, and someone else started praying, and several people started praying at the same time. And rather than say stop, he said, just keep going. And everybody started praying together. This happens in some Korean churches. I was in uh, South Korea at an all-night prayer meeting with about 25,000 people in an auditorium with a group of Americans who walked in and like, do I know anything about prayer at this point? Do I, do I even know who Jesus is uh, being around them? And uh, so we had our headphones on, getting translations of things that were being said. The whole room's praying. And at some point he says, like, turn around to all the American people up there and pray for them. And it's a little delayed because everybody's turning around and then I'm hearing turn around and pray. And all of a sudden it's like, I mean, 25,000 people praying loudly. No one was really, uh, really quiet about it for all of us. And it was just, it blew my hair back. Uh, just a powerful, powerful experience. So he had some kind of experience like this. Everybody was praying. But not only did everybody start praying, but people started confessing sin. So everybody's praying for him and for other things. And they start going to one another and confessing sin and getting right with one another. The prayer meeting went till 2 a.m. That was a weak one. It wasn't all night. It was just 2 a.m. So that one went to just 2 a.m. in revival. All of these people that were there went to their towns and started doing what happened in that prayer meeting. And what I read was people went back and started getting right with folks they had sinned against, asking forgiveness. People went to unbelievers and confessed. People going to their employers. Hey, this is what I did. Somebody went back to a Chinese employer and said, here's a large amount of money I stole from you. And now I'm a Christian and I'm making restitution. Blown away. The church blew up. People, it was a small church. People started getting saved all over the place. And it was what was characteristic of that renewal was people no longer concealing, but confessing not only to God, but to those who they'd sinned against and even making restitution where necessary. And people, and it it had an evangelistic power because people said, what is this? Who does this? See, oftentimes people in the world don't repent because they've never seen people in the church repent. They've heard us judge and they've heard us yell and they've heard us look down our nose and they've heard us separate ourselves from them as if we're contaminated by them as opposed to what's in it. Jesus says we're contaminated by what's in here, not by what's out there. But we, we keep our distance so as not to be contaminated and so they never see repentance. So when the people of God repent, it can have an effect outside. It did in Korea, and now Korea has a very high percentage of people who are believers in Christ. And that's largely where it started, was in the early 1900s, in a revival. So we confess the person we've offended. Lastly, we confess, we should confess to someone who can help us grow to, I'm not going to develop that point, but if there's someone who can help you, acknowledge your need and ask for prayer, ask for help. Number three, we forsake our sin. That's what he says. We We uncover, we confess, and forsake. Verse 13, if you forsake them, you will obtain mercy. Repentance is not just about confessing sin, it's about leaving it. It's grace-motivated, it's spirit-empowered, and it is a leaving. It really means, I know this sounds so practical, it means I used to say this, now I'm not saying that anymore. Or I'm not saying that as regularly. Because God is changing me. I used to do this. I'm not doing that anymore. I used to feel this and act this way. I'm not doing that. I've turned away. Repentance means life change. It means that the prodigal son came to his senses, woke up, 
woke up and said, I'm eating pig's food. My father's servants do better than this. I'm going home and confessing. I'm pleading for mercy. And he gets up. He has to go. He changes. He gets out of the sty, out of the mud, and he goes to his father. It is the opposite. Forsaking is the opposite of hardening. Verse 14 is, we harden our heart, we fall into calamity. We hang on to it, we harden. We hear conviction, we get busy. We don't think about it, we avoid. We blame someone else, we get hard. We hide, deceive. We shroud in darkness, we hide. And when we hide, we harden our hearts. And what he's saying here is, we bring it to the light, we confess, and then we turn and we let it go. Now, here's something very interesting to me, so I hope it'll be interesting to you. If not, humor me and act interested, for at least for this moment. Verse 14, just kidding. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always. I'm sorry, verse 13. Whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. It's the word mercy. If I read this in one commentary, I probably wouldn't say anything because I'd say, ah, I'm not sure because I'm not a Hebrew guy, Hebrew scholar. But I read this in multiple commentaries, that the word for mercy has at its root, this, this particular word for mercy has at its root the, the word womb. The word womb. The mercy of God is tied to an image of a womb. And Ray Ortland, in his commentary on Proverbs, says, why, why did they use that word? Why, did the, uh, why is it used the word, the root of womb, for mercy? This is what he says. Because God has a soft spot in his heart for sinners who open up and come clean. God envelops us in his tenderness and warmth when we confess and forsake our sins. That's what awaits us. The protective safety, the womb-like, protective, life-giving, warm embrace of the mercy of God. That's the picture. Hide and die. Come out into the open, confess, forsake, and be enveloped, covered, completely sealed by the mercy of God. That is a beautiful picture. See, God calls us to stop covering ourselves. That's what Adam and Eve did. They sewed fig leaves into loincloths to cover themselves after they sinned. And do you know what God did in chapter 3? God comes to them and God takes the skins of an animal. An animal dies. God kills this animal. The animal dies. I don't know what happened. But it took the skin of an animal and he clothes them. See, he, he wouldn't allow them to cover themselves, to cover their shame and their sin. He covered them. And that pointed forward to what happens in the Old Testament where an animal, a lamb is killed, an animal is killed just like there, and we are covered in the blood of the animal, figuratively speaking. Our sins are covered by the death of another. And that foresaw, that led to, that pointed to Jesus who died as a lamb and his blood was shed and he covers our sins. See, we don't have to cover them. 
They've already been covered by the Lord Jesus Christ in his death and in his resurrection. So we can come out of the darkness and into the light knowing he's already paid for our sins and that he welcomes us. That our sorry little fig leaf loincloth doesn't really cover us. The only covering that is really true is the work of Jesus in the gospel for us. He forgives our sins. He obeys in our place. He gives us a new heart. And he empowers us to change. God empowers us to change. And because he's covered us, we can be real. I can take the black tarp off what I've been hiding. Because Jesus died for that. I can acknowledge that. I can leave that and forsake that. And come into the light. And a A a real church, a real gospel church is a community of grace where everybody can uncover. And people are like, oh, whoa, I would never. That's a culture of legalism and judgment. A culture which says, yeah, that's wrong, but Jesus died for that. Now let me put my arm around you and let's walk to him and receive mercy together. We can be real Because we're covered by Christ. We can acknowledge who we are without fear of shame because he's taken it and covers us. He forgives. He envelops us with a life-giving, protective mercy. And so we can live openly before him. Verse 14, the one who fears the Lord always. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always. We can walk. That's a strange set of words for us. Blessed means congratulations, congratulations. Ray Orland says, the word blessed is, it's a biblical high five is what he says. It's a congratulations. You're blessed. You're blessed. We can know God. We can be aware of God. We can fear the Lord and we can run to his mercy and we live a blessed life. Blessed. May God turn us. I don't know what God's doing in your heart personally, but I believe God wants to turn us to run to him, to experience The mercy of God, which washes away shame, washes away guilt, washes away false guilt, leads us into the light to experience his mercy. And when that happens, people start getting renewed one by one. A culture gets renewed, a church culture, people of God get renewed, walk in openness, and that spreads to people who've never experienced what we're talking about right here. They don't know anything about that in the world. They don't know anything about this. The forgiving power of Christ us. Repentance, it's the best. It's the best option. It's the most hopeful proposition. It's an invitation to mercy and freedom. Let's take it. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.